Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker. I live a pretty ordinary life, and I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind, a revelation about who He is and how we fit into the story He is telling, even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books with a unifying theme. God desires a relationship with us. So I'm glad you're here, and I hope by the time we're done, you've learned a little bit more about who God is and the relationship He desires to have with you. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me today. We'll be looking at John 17 again in this podcast and focusing on the last few verses of this chapter. In last week's episode, I didn't exactly go verse by verse through the first part of this chapter. This chapter is the prayer Jesus prayed with his disciples in his presence right before the Garden of Gethsemane scene. And as I studied this prayer, it made more sense to pick out a few concepts from the first 19 verses and discuss those holistically rather than trying to go verse by verse. So that's what I did in the first episode for this chapter. As a quick recap, in verses 1-5, through Jesus prays for himself. He recognizes that the time has come for his death although he refers to it as the hour of glorification. He's focused on completing his mission and giving God the Father all the glory. I can assure you, if I were facing death and I knew it, I would probably be tempted to beg God to spare my life. I'd be tossing in some last-minute prayers for my kids and my husband, and again, asking God to do a miracle. You see, as humans, we value being alive. We don't know anything other than our experience in life. But Jesus realized the value of his death. Not only would he be fulfilling God's plan to offer salvation to mankind, but he'd also be closer to returning to heaven. And really, can we blame him for preferring heaven over earth? (laughs) No, I don't think so. He gave up total glory to come down and live on this broken planet among a group of people who disrespected him and eventually killed him over his claims to be God. So his perspective on death is completely different than ours would have likely been. Now, if you'll review verses 6 through 19 with me, you'll see that Jesus prays specifically for his 11 disciples. He establishes several truths about his relationship with the Father and asks the Father for a few things on behalf of his disciples. So today, I want to dig in a little more to these verses as well as walk through the remaining six verses where Jesus prays for all believers. I'd like to focus on a phrase that repeats several times in this chapter. In Greek, the word is pronounced hina, and in English, the word is translated either that or so that. Now, I haven't picked a very impressive word to study, have I? So before you decide to quit listening to this episode because the word that isn't very interesting, just hear me out. This word is used to signal a cause and effect situation. And isn't prayer something we do because we're hoping for a cause and effect situation? Like if we pray about a situation, don't we hope and expect that our prayers will impact the result? So I want to look at all the instances of this word to help us understand what Jesus prayed for and what lessons we can learn from his prayer. Jesus first used this phrase in verse 1. 
He asks God the Father to glorify him so that he can in turn glorify the Father. We touched on this last week when we talked about how Jesus' prayer was all about God the Father getting glory. It wasn't about Jesus' comfort or Jesus' desires. In everything he did, Jesus wanted the Father to receive glory. In the very next verse, Jesus uses the same phrase and says, Just as you have given him authority over all humanity so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Again, last week we touched on this idea of Jesus getting full authority and using it only as a good thing to gift us with eternal life. And then again in verse 3, this word is used when Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. The purpose for living for eternity is not to gratify our desires. The purpose is to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So often we hear people say things about loved ones who have passed on, about how heaven needed another angel, or they're up there enjoying their favorite food and drink on their heavenly birthday, or they're playing their best round of golf for all eternity. And although these thoughts and words maybe make us feel better about life after death, they are not biblical. The Bible teaches that heaven is all about God and not all about us. We will spend eternity worshiping him and acknowledging his glory. We don't turn into angels and we don't do the things in heaven that we found enjoyable here on earth. And while that might not sound as good as eating your favorite food or playing your favorite game or becoming an angel, trust me, it is so much better. Jesus gave us eternal life not so that we'd get all our earthly desires, but so that we would know him, a far greater outcome than anything we ourselves would pursue. It's greater than anything we can imagine. Don't limit heaven to your experiences here on earth. It is nothing like what we can comprehend. God's glory, it'll knock our heavenly socks off, so to speak. I don't even really have the English words for it. But I can assure you, Jesus was looking forward to going back to heaven. So in the opening part of this prayer, Jesus prays for God to be glorified and for believers to know him in eternity. Now, let's take a look at the section from verse 16 through 19 and the so that's Jesus used in that section. As we talked about last week, these verses are specifically a prayer of Jesus for his 11 disciples. There are four instances of this cause and effect phrasing in these verses. In verse 11, Jesus asked the Father to keep them safe so that they will be unified as one, just as he and the Father are one. Now, in verse 12, he references that Judas was lost so that the scripture could be fulfilled. He does want unification among his eleven, but there is this nod to the prophecy that one of his disciples would betray him and be lost. What Jesus is referring to here is the foreshadowing of Judas's betrayal in the Psalms. In Psalm 31, verse 9, it says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, 
He who shared meals with me has turned against me. In this psalm, David, the author, is referring to someone in his life who has no doubt betrayed him. It could be David's friend Ahithophel, who betrayed David and then ended up hanging himself. But we aren't entirely certain. We did read in John 13, verse 18, that Jesus uses this verse from David's psalm to predict that one of the disciples sitting at the table at the Last Supper would indeed betray him. Jesus quotes the psalm when he says in this verse, What I am saying does not refer to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. The one who eats my bread has turned against me. So the phrase I read, but this, is that same Greek word, which means so that this is to fulfill the scripture. Now we could deviate into a discussion of fate here. Did Judas have a choice in his betrayal? Was it fate? He couldn't escape? As interesting as that might be, unfortunately, I'm not going to chase that rabbit for at least two reasons. One, it's not the purpose of this podcast to delve deeply into sidebars. Although the discussion may be important and beneficial, it doesn't fit my purpose, which is to present the Bible in a clear and compelling way. And two, I won't delve too deeply into things I can't offer a concrete explanation for. I really don't know the exact answer to those questions. God does, but I don't. And in the event that I feel I've learned enough to say with certainty the answer to such things, I'll make sure to post a podcast on that. But I really don't know how predestination works. I'm a finite human with a finite mind and a limited experience. So I'm going to trust that Jesus said Judas was lost so that the scripture could be fulfilled. And I'm going to be okay with whatever that means in terms of free will and predestination. It doesn't take away from the central message of Jesus's gospel or what I, as a believer in Jesus, am called to do. Which, by the way, we are getting to here shortly. So, let's keep going. In verse 13, Jesus states that he is coming to his father so that his disciples can experience his joy in its fullness. Now, this was probably confusing to the disciples when they heard it. After all, how could they fully experience Jesus' joy if Jesus left them, right? But so often we see that the teachings of Jesus are counterintuitive to our thinking. The disciples could not fully understand the plan of salvation for all people and could not have the Holy Spirit unless Jesus died and then he was raised from the dead and then ascended to heaven. So when Jesus says their full joy is the effect of him leaving to go to the Father, I have no doubt there were a few eyebrows furrowed in confusion among his disciples. But I'm also sure that in retrospect, it all made sense. In the moment, this cause and effect was probably difficult for them to comprehend. And then we get to the final so that in this chunk of scripture, which is found in verse 17. Jesus states that he was set apart so that they would also be set apart. And last week we talked about sanctification and how this phrase means to be different and to be made like Jesus and not like the world. Okay, so for all of these cause and effect scenarios, we see that Jesus's entire focus is on God's glory and on ensuring that his followers are taken care of. And now we come to the last section of this prayer. Again, I want to focus on this English phrase, so that, or that. 
So first, I'll read these six verses, and today I'm reading from the New English Translation. And then we'll dig in and see where we find that phrase and what it means. This is starting in verse 20. I am not praying only on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony, that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory you gave to me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one, so that the world will know that you sent me, and you have loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they can see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, even if the world does not know you, I know you, and these men know that you sent me. I made known your name to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Okay. So as we mentioned briefly in these verses, Jesus turns his attention to believers who will come to know him through the testimony of his 11 disciples. If you haven't made the connection yet, that means you, if you're a believer in Jesus. And it means me too. And all the people we know who are believers. Jesus prayed this prayer for us on the night before he was crucified. I just think it's incredibly important that we pay attention to this. So like we've done in the previous two-thirds of this chapter, let's focus on the cause and effects of Jesus' prayer. The first one is found in verse 21. Jesus has stated that he's not praying only for his disciples, but for all believers so that they will all be one, just as Jesus is one with the Father. Okay, friends, this is a big ask, isn't it? Pause with me a moment and consider if you think the believers you know act as if they are unified in oneness on God the Father and God the Son. Now, I can think of many examples of oneness with believers I know, and it brings me tremendous joy to feel unified with them in prayer and in worship and in desires to see others come to faith in Christ and in reaching out in our community and in generosity. But I can also think of many, many examples of divisiveness among believers. Now, as a kid, the joke was always about churches who split over choosing carpet colors. People couldn't agree on whether to go with green or taupe, so they split and formed new churches. But now, as an adult, I see that the differences in opinions among believers can run much deeper and have much more significant impacts than just choosing decor in a building. In fact, I'm recording this just a few weeks before the U.S. presidential election of 2020. In my lifetime, I don't think I have yet to see such division among believers. But you know, Jesus never came to set up a political kingdom on earth. And yet, so many American believers link their faith in Jesus with a political party. I just don't think that's what Jesus would have done. And in doing so, it's creating tremendous division in the church. 
And maybe you're listening from another country and have a completely different context. But can you think of your own experience with believers who have radically different opinions? Jesus prayed for us to experience oneness together. Let's keep that in mind as we navigate personal differences of opinions and political ideologies. And let's keep going because there's another key part to this prayer. In the same verse where Jesus says that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, Jesus says these words, I pray that they will be one in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Oh, the reason Jesus wants us to be unified is so that the unbelievers would become believers. Jesus prayed that we would be unified so that his testimony and the work he did on the cross would draw others to saving faith. My friends, when we are tempted to get into it with other believers, we are doing the opposite of what Jesus prayed for. That Christian you know who's really irritating, don't badmouth him or her, and especially not in front of other believers. That post you want to write on Facebook or Twitter, telling others that if they don't vote for your preferred candidate, they don't vote for the things of God, that's not inspiring non-believers to check out Jesus' message of love and grace. That decision about how a ministry should be run or what color paint should be on the walls or what worship songs should or should not be sung, make those in unity. And if you don't get your way, love your brothers and sisters anyway and pray that the unity you display will draw seekers who are attending your church to Jesus and not turn them away. Because after all, churches are no better than any other organization. My friends, Jesus' prayer for you and for me, is that we would be one so that the world will know him. Our greatest testimony, our biggest opportunity to share Jesus's gospel message is how we treat others. It's not in the color of our walls. It's not in the candidate we vote for. It's not in the worship songs we choose to sing. In fact, this message of unity is so important to Jesus that he repeats it. Did you catch it when I read the verses? It's almost like an echo chamber. In the very next verse, which is verse 22, Jesus says, The glory you gave to me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I mean, Jesus really, really wants us to have the same unity he has with the Father. He's said it twice now. And he goes on and repeats the effect of this. Verse 23 is basically a repeat of verse 21. I in them and you in me, that they may be so completely one. I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. It would be foolish to downplay these verses to ignore the incredible importance of what Jesus is doing here. First of all, God the Son is praying to God the Father. That's huge. And in that prayer, in the Son's communication to the Father, He is praying for us, for believers of all time, for you, for me, for the church curmudgeon, for the one who isn't a believer yet, but will be. And twice, in a few short sentences, 
He prays for unity so that the world will know Jesus. This is big. Do not miss how big this is. My friends, if you are living in a situation of disunity with your brothers and sisters in Christ, can I encourage you, can I implore you to think deeply and pray sincerely about how the words of Jesus' prayer should be impacting your life. We are to be unified. Unified in our belief in the gospel. Unified in our love for one another. Unified in our mission to bring the gospel to the unbelieving world. We don't all have to like green carpet. We don't all have to vote for the same political candidate. We don't all have to like the same small group curriculum. Or agree on which worship songs should be sung. But these things should not divide us. We can exist as one body and still have things we like and prefer that our other members simply do not. To my friends listening to this in real time and living in America, can I be honest with you for just a few moments? I don't think American Christians particularly many of those active on social media, are showing the world that we are unified as Jesus and the Father are. I don't think we are living out Jesus' request for us. So let me say this. If you're a Republican, there are believers who love Jesus as much as you do, and they are Democrats. And if you're a Democrat, there are believers who love Jesus as much as you do, and they're Republicans, love each other. Jesus asked God the Father to make us all one. He didn't ask God the Father to unite us in politics. In the next few weeks, we as Americans will elect one of two men. And guess what? When it's all said and done, we will still be here on earth living together. We will have to move forward with the mission God gave us to share the gospel. Will the world want to listen to our message? Will unbelievers look at our unity and because of that be inspired to find out more about Jesus? Or will they see our posts and listen to our offhanded comments and read our t-shirts or yard signs or bumper stickers and think, I can get that kind of treatment anywhere. Why would I venture into a church? Jesus did not come to set up a political kingdom. He did not come to establish a political party or ensure one group had political power over another. So our number one priority should not be our politics. Jesus' priority was the message of love and grace that the Father sent him to spread. His number one priority was to seek and to save the lost. He prayed specifically for us to be unified, to have a relationship with other believers that reflected his relationship with the Father so that the world would know that the Father sent Jesus and the Father loves them just as he loves his Son. Let's be challenged by this prayer of Jesus for us. Let's examine our lives and consider if the world was to evaluate Jesus' relationship with God the Father based on our relationship with other believers, what conclusions they would draw. 
And then let's pray that we will become everything Jesus prayed we would be. I'll cast my vote for a presidential candidate here in the next few weeks, and I hope my fellow Americans will exercise that privilege as well. But my political vote, it's not my priority. My priority is and needs to continue to be to follow Jesus. And in doing so, I need to focus on his message of love and grace and live the life he prayed for me. I'll be praying for you to do the very same thing. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for My Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforteordinarylife.com.